صباح الخير جود مورنينج دي ليسنرز يو ليسنينج تو راديو 3 سي ار اون 855 Palestine Remembered is Australia's only English language radio program that is totally dedicated to Palestine. We'd like to welcome those listening on 855 and those that will join us on podcast at 3cr.org.au. Thanks for joining us. Stay with us and enjoy the episode. Good morning, Yusuf. Good morning, Michael Sheikh. Welcome again. Welcome to our listeners. Well, good morning, Robert and Michael. So, Michael, it's good to have you again on the show. Yeah, great to be here. Thank you. Michael Sheikh is a public advocate for Palestine, political commentator and analyst and an Australian who has done so much for Palestine uh, for uh, nearly two decades. And what, what, Michael, are we going to be discussing today? What's on the agenda? What are you going to discuss with us? Well, I think it's very important to talk about what's happening in Jerusalem right now, mm. particularly um, the provocations at the Haram al-Sharif. Yeah, we'll talk about uh, Al-Quds, Al-Haram al-Sharif, and also we'll talk about the anniversary of Tel Az-Zatar massacre. So let's start, Michael, with um, the ongoing uh, Israeli provocations against the Palestinians, in particular the people of Jerusalem. And we've seen uh, just hours after the Eid prayer, uh, Israelis allowed or the Israeli police allowed settlers to enter the holiest place for Muslims. How did you read that? Well, um Unfortunately, the way it's been presented on the news is just a group of religious Jews wanted to go up to um, the Haram al-Sharif, which is their ancient temple mount, to pray. And what could be wrong with that? The, the trouble is we've seen this movie so many times before. Fifty years ago, there were a group of Jews who just wanted to spend the Passover in Hebron. And what mm. could be wrong with that? thing is they moved into the center of town, into a Palestinian hotel, and then refused to leave. Then they demanded the army protect them. And then from there, they went and took over house after house after house until almost all of Heb- um, central Hebron was um, um, cleansed of its Palestinian population. Then in 1994, one of their members committed a spectacular massacre at the Ibrahimi Mosque, which you guys covered in an excellent episode a couple of months ago. Mm. Now, it wasn't the settlers who were punished for the massacre, even though they committed it. It was the Palestinians. And that's exactly what's happening here. It's, there's nothing innocent about Jews wanting to go up to pray on the Temple Mount during a Muslim holiday. It's designed to provoke the Palestinians so that they can get a foothold there and they can do what they've done um, to Hebron in the old city of Jerusalem, mm. cleanse it one house at a time. Now that Trump has let the Israelis off the leash, there is massive ethnic cleansing happening throughout the, the city. That's increased know. massively? Yeah, the repression, the house demolitions, the level of pro- provocation all over the place. And The reason it's so central to Palestine is because this is their largest remaining city outside of the Gaza Strip, which is essentially a big refugee camp. And it's a place they 
intend to hold of their cattle, but it's not just religious sensitivities that are involved here. They're very important. Mm. But the thing is you've got to understand how political it is because um, the, the, the um, Jewish settlers use religion as an excuse for these provocations. Mm. But what they're actually on about is repeating what they've done for 100 years, use religion to get a foothold and then force the Palestinians out house by house um, um, over the years. And, you know, that's the danger of Jerusalem right now. A month now. before that, uh, Israel uh, demolished uh, tens of Palestinian uh, homes uh, in uh, Jerusalem under the name of protecting the wall. Yeah. And when the wall was built, it was under the name of protecting proper Israel. Mm. From uh, So now where does this end? It starts mm. with a big lie. Now, every Israeli diplomat and politician will tell you that Jerusalem is the eternal, undivided capital of the Jewish people. Now, if anybody goes to Jerusalem, they'll see that it is literally and physically the most divided city on the face of the earth. Mm. The wall that they've got running through Jerusalem is much longer than the Berlin Wall, which was... Um, a symbol of the 20th century, of the late 20th century, of what the Cold War was all about. Just like the apartheid war running through Jerusalem is a symbol of our Visual modern Visual reminder. Yes. Mm. And you see, not even the um, Soviets tried to pre- present um, Berlin as a united, undivided city. But what Israel's actually doing to the rest of the world is they're gaslighting them now. And mm. they're saying that Jerusalem is the eternal undivided capital of the Jewish people. And if they can get you to swallow that, they can get you to swallow anything. They're actually not only – it's not only a challenge of justice. It's actually what reality is, mm. essentially. They're saying black is white. It's very Orwellian what they're presenting. Mm. And, you know, when you go to Jerusalem, you know, either side of the world – it's first world to third world, just like that. And it's all about Jews in, Palestinians out. It really is the face of apartheid in the 21st century. And uh, mind you that the Palestinians who live these horrible uh, subhumane conditions uh, in East Jerusalem are paying the same taxes. Yeah. As much as the Jews yeah. who get the doubled amount of services. Yeah, they're taking their money, mm. and that's the only reason that they cross over or to arrest people. But, you know, not for crimes like burglary. Mm. They're the Palestinians that are on their own, but for political activism, non-payment of taxes. In 2015, uh, UNRWA did a research study in which uh, it said that the worst place for Palestinian children around the world, not in Gaza, not in the refugee camps in Lebanon, not in the refugee camps in Syria, even during the war, but in Jerusalem. Right. The worst the worst place for Palestinian children around the world is the Palestinians of Jerusalem. Another right. huge thing we're forgetting is water. The Palestinians yeah. are basically buying their own water back. And mm. it's uh, you know, the pressure is incredibly different when you're in Jerusalem in the you know, the Jewish quarter. You've, You've seen it there, uh, Robert. Yeah, well, then I went to a Palestinian house on the other side and the water was dripping. Yeah. You're on a bus and you're going through. You know, you see all fantastic buildings. They're all new. Within five minutes later, you're in an area. Once you go through the checkpoint, you go through an area where the, the roads are horrific. There's holes in them. It's a different world. It's bizarre. Yeah. It's like you walk through a door. It's that quick. Mm. Uh, you know, mm. And I thought, oh, this is just going to be a little suburb. You know, We'll come to something better soon. And all the way through Palestine, it's like that. You know, when Scott Morrison last year said he wanted to recognise Jerusalem as Israel's capital, 
what could be wrong with that? You know, that because is people, exactly because what Because countries get to choose the, its capitals. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But, I mean, um, generally they don't make their capitals in someone else's country and then exclude half the population from citizenship. It's sort of frowned upon Michael to do that sort of thing. Yeah, it? yeah. But, you know, the way he presented it, every country's got a right and we're going to recognise um, reality and it's going to help along the peace process. Mm. You know, this is our Pentecostal prime minister showing exactly whose side it's on. So it's not just a Jew-Muslim thing. It cross-cuts all of these religions. You've got Jews and Muslims and Christians on both sides now. So, Michael, back to what happened uh, on uh, Eid Day uh, last uh, Sunday um, and how uh, the police allowed the settlers to enter and the Palestinians showed huge uh, determination and steadfastness. How do you read that again? I think the thing was that the Palestinians passed the test. If he just gone and prayed and left, mm. there wouldn't have been the big backlash. But because the Palestinians understand how high the stakes are here, yeah. that's why they have to put their bodies on the line mm. because they know that if they get a foothold like they did in Hebron, you know, the, the mistake was in 1967, they let those Jews innocently go and stay in the hotel for Passover and then they realized there was nothing innocent about that visit no, at all. No. And it was the beginning of a mm. terrible chapter of ethnic cleansing. And, you know, there's um, settlements right in the heart of the Muslim quarter of East Jerusalem now. Mm. So they realize that they've got to show up and stand up and take their beatings every time there's a provocation like this. Because if, if they let them get away with it, then I'll take a bit more next time. Now, I want uh, to get your thoughts, Michael, on the bigger picture. Now, we have uh, Boris Johnson a Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, and we have uh, Trump, and we have uh, in Australia, and then the rise of the far right or uh, you got Bolsonaro in um, Brazil and in Modi Brazil in and India. Modi in India. Yeah. So we have substantial countries uh, that have so much weight, whether in population or economy or diplomacy, and on the side of uh, Israel, not just the Israeli uh, definition of the two-state solution, but the old-school Hasbara-style uh, Zionist uh, propaganda. Undivided of capital undivided of the capital. Yeah. Now, in light of all that, how do you see the future of, I don't want to talk about the Palestinian issue in general, mm. but the Jerusalem issue, mm. the future mm. of the Jerusalem debate in light of the rise of the far-right movements and governments around the world. In the Middle Ages, every map used to have Jerusalem at the center of the world. And I think that's the case in the 20th century now. You've got to remember that more than half the world's population still regard Jerusalem as a holy city because they're members of the Abrahamic religions. And the, Do you the, confirm this, uh, Robert? I think this uh, statistic is correct. Yeah, we checked it before. It okay, is uh, over, over half of the religions, yep. Yes. And so when they talk about um, Jerusalem being an undivided capital of the Jewish people, a city of peace, and when Donald Trump, um, you know, lords Israel as a democracy and Scott Morrison and people like that, we're talking about two different visions of the future and what actually peace actually means. And, you know, on one side, it's a piece of walls, it's a piece of of keeping people out, about um, bullying and deporting refugees, about 
chosen and non-chosen peoples and, and, and that kind of thing. That is what all of these people, whether you're talking about Modi, Bolsonaro, Trump, Morrison, Orban, and all of them, um, put together agree on. And on the other side, you know, there's those of us who still believe that peace is the absence of violence and it's about people cooperating and sharing and living together despite their religious and racial differences. The Jerusalem issues that we're seeing now, are they, have they increased over the last few years? And do you think they're going to keep increasing at a much faster rate? Well, I think it was in 2015 when Israel tried to introduce metal detectors in order to 2017. get... 2017. 2017. Yeah. And there was a massive and extremely successful... Yes, popular um, rise yeah. and resistance. Yeah, by the Palestinians. With huge... You know why I remember that? Because it coincided with my birthday, 27th of July, 2017. Right. On, a, on another note. Go right. Ahead. But, you know, you know it, was met, it was huge violence by the Israelis. Mm. And I think it was during... Um, Ramadan. Um, the, the Leading pal- to Ramadan. Yeah, because mm. I remember Christian Palestinians were yeah. bringing water to the Muslims while they were mm. praying. Mm. And there was a gr- great deal of solidarity, mm. even in spite of the massive police repression. And it actually worked. It worked. Um, it was a victory for the Palestinians of Jerusalem. Yeah. A victory for the Muslim Christian solidarity of Jerusalem. Exactly. And a victory of what we call a Tadayun al Watani, a spirit that combines being uh, national and being religious. So it was a victory for the popular struggle in Jerusalem. Yeah. And I think that's what we were talking about earlier. You know, these different versions of the future, these different versions of peace. Hmm. Are we bound to hate each other because of our religions, or can we work together? And, you know, that fascinating interview you did with Orly Noy. Hmm. And how, you know, historically Iranian Jews and Muslims have um, worked together Mm. and how Zionism tries to break that up. And I think it's these visions of the future. As for what the future will hold, I think it's very hard to tell. Uh, I mean, the thing that amazes me about Palestinians, how they continue finding new ways to resist in spite of being abandoned by the world mm. and repressed so savagely by Israel. But, um, you know, all we can say is that they've done a very impressive job in Jerusalem over the last few years. I think the Netanyahu uh, government and the settlers uh, are in race with time because they say we might have, how long will it take for the next American elections? November next year, and then November next year, and then the following January there'll be a changeover. So if Trump they're loses. racing, they're racing time. They say, let's get the best out yeah. of this idiotic administration because they we can get away with more settlements, we can get away with more Judaization than we have ever uh, been able to since yeah. the inception of the state. It's so like a child saying, "Let's do this before we get caught." Yeah. <laughs> yes, you know, exactly. So. Mm. And they're racing time and the intensity and polarization of the settler project has reached unprecedented levels. And Jerusalem is the spearhead of that. So I think to answer your question, uh, Robert, I'm not optimistic. I think we're going to see more of these things, more of these provocations, more of the settler raids against Muslim and Christian sites, more of the police 
and military uh, iron fist policy against the the, oh, the the owners of the land, the Palestinians. Because there's nobody to hold them to account, is there? And they nobody. can get away with it because, first of all, Jerusalem is isolated from West Bank and physically isolated because of the wall. And the PA is under financial pressure and Hamas is isolated in Gaza with Gaza-only problems. And the Arab world is busy with its regional conflicts. And now with the rise of normalization trends, and Iran is distracting uh, the attention to other, uh, you know, regional issues. So it is the perfect time. I'm mm. not, it is the perfect time for more provocation. I think the Jerusalemite people understand that. They understand that. In a way, that. they're they on their neglected. own. They have our solidarity because they understand this is bigger than Palestine or Jerusalem. They're actually fighting for all of us because yes. this is a central struggle in the world struggle between justice and racism. Indeed. And like I say, it's even a struggle for language and reality mm. because Israel is not an undivided city, let alone the undivided eternal capital of the Jewish people. And, you know, that, that's a big lie. Once you can get people to swallow a big lie, you can get them to accept anything. And, you know, if you go there, it hits you in the face. But, you know, people can be brainwashed into just believing nonsense. We believe what we see on the TV. Well, that was a great conversation on Jerusalem. And I know over the next few weeks, next few years, we'll be talking about it. So thanks, Michael. And thank you, Yusuf. Uh, I think we need to move on to a horrific event. It's the 43rd anniversary of a massacre that happened in Lebanon for, to the Palestinians. And Yusuf, tell us about that. Yes, uh, Robert, uh, last Tuesday was the 43rd anniversary of Tel Azatar massacre, uh, in which uh, more than 4,000 refugees were killed in 1976. Uh, Tel Azatar, which is uh, the Arabic word for the time hill, the herb time Zatar was built in 1949 for Palestinian refugees who were kicked out of uh, Palestine and went to the southern parts of Lebanon and Beirut and eventually to the northern part as well. So the camp was built in 49 and by the 70s it became home of 20,000 Palestinian refugees, around 3,000 houses. The location of uh, the camp uh, was uh, proven to be fatal to uh, the population because it was in East Beirut, Beirut al-Sharqiyya, and uh, in the eyes of the warring parties, especially the ultra-nationalist uh, Christian militias in Lebanon, they viewed it as um, uh, a Palestinian-slash-Muslim island in a Christian ocean, and uh, the control over this camp was of so much strategic importance after the breakup of war in 1975. And it was not about Palestine. The propaganda led by anti-Palestinian Lebanese uh, is that they say that the war in Lebanon wouldn't have happened without the presence of Palestinian Liberation Organization in Lebanon. And that is total rubbish because it was purely Lebanese problem. And we've seen it in 1860, in the 19th century. We've seen it in 1958. So it's a continuation of internal sectarian and political and ideological issues. The fact that PLO was there is secondary to the main 
roots of the war. So the war started in 1975 between the ultra-nationalist militias, particularly Al-Kata'ib forces, the Tiger forces, the guardians of the Sidars forces, and several other uh, far-right uh, Christian militias. Uh, that's from one side. From the other side, there were the uh, Lebanese uh, left groups, the communists, the socialists, uh, and other progressive groups, other uh, Islamic uh, militias, uh, some uh, na- uh, pan-Arabist militias. And further down the track, uh, they were supported by uh, PLO. Of course, the warring parties uh, changed uh, during the life of the war, Uh, which extended for 15 years. So from the first uh, weeks and months of the war, the Palestinian camps in Lebanon uh, were under attack by ultra-nationalist groups, and uh, especially the ones that have strategic importance and locations, like Tel Zatar. Now in Tel Zatar, there were um, Fatah fighters, and uh, there were 20,000 Palestinians. So in June 1976, the camp was put under tightened siege. And when I say siege, I mean total blockade and total isolation of the camp and cutting of food, water, telecommunications, total isolation. In addition to that, injured civilians were not allowed to uh, to leave the camp for treatment. Because they shelled it as well. And they, they kept shelling. There were more than 50,000 shells 50, thrown, thrown at this small area during the 52 days of the siege. During the first stages of the siege, the Palestinian resistance and refugees showed strong resistance and uh, steadfastness. And the ultra-nationalist militias surrounding the camp started to lose hope that there will be no result for this siege. Then came something that changed the dynamic of the siege, the Syrian intervention. Syria decided to enter Lebanon in '76. Hafez al-Assad, the father, decided to enter in support of the far-right movement. And with the backing of the United States. With the backing of the United States. That's correct, because the Americans didn't want to see the Palestinians undefeated. So they gave the green light to Hafez al-Assad to enter Lebanon and to change the balance in favor of the ultra-nationalists. So uh, when Syria, uh, a strong uh, country with a strong army sends 25,000 soldiers to Lebanon, the majority of whom took uh, part in uh, the siege of the camp, in addition to uh, the militias uh, that have been besieging it. Of course, it was it was a huge blow to the Palestinian uh, resistance and uh, their capacity to continue to defend uh, the camp. And the siege ended in the worst possible scenario ever, giving uh, the Palestinians the false promise that if you leave unarmed, we will secure, we will guarantee your security. Um, On one day, on the 12th of uh, August 1976, 1,500 Palestinians were killed. The majority, the vast majority, are children, women, elderly people, and civilians. Brutally killed with hate 
driven mentality with 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 militias raid raiding the camps and houses and butchering people and killing pregnant women and throwing children off the roofs of the buildings and the atrocities that you can imagine and you cannot imagine in massacres like this so uh, the brutality the palestinian civilians and refugees witnessed during the massacre of tel zatar is nothing less than what they have seen six years later in Sabra and Shatila. Mm. And it was uh, mm. one of the worst chapters, but also what happened in Tel Zatar is not less than what happened in uh, Sabra and Shatila. So all, all of those people will suffer for, forever. They'll, they'll never get over it. That's exactly right, uh, Robert. In 2016, in my visit uh, to Egypt to see some of the ex-Syria Palestinian refugees there, I met a family, the husband... Uh, is from Yermuk camp in Syria and the wife, his wife was uh, from Tel Zatar uh, a woman in her late 50s still damaged uh, mentally and emotionally and psychologically for what she had seen uh, when she was a child witnessing her both parents being killed before her eyes and witnessing other atrocities that only God knows about and the sad reality is like the father Hafez like the son Bashar, Yarmouk witnessed similar fate to Tel Zatar and the total destruction of the capital of Palestinian diaspora at the hand of Al-Assad forces in 2018 under the pretext of fighting terrorism. And starved and shelled and, and starved besieged. After seven, after seven yeah. years of starvation. So 42 years since the massacre of Tel Zatar camp, the memory remains painful. It will be the memory of betrayal. It will be the memory of backstabbing. And it will be a memory that will con- continue to live as long as the Palestinian struggle will continue to live. And there is no better way to end the commemoration of Tel Zatar massacre than to recite a translation of parts of a poem written by Mahmoud Darwish for Tel Zatar titled Ahmadul Arabi which we will listen to uh, from the beautiful voice of uh, Robert. Before that, I want to thank you, Michael, for joining us to another uh, edition of Palestine Remembered. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you. And thank you all uh, our listeners uh, for tuning in. And we will leave you until the end of this uh, episode with Robert and Mahmoud Darwish. Those hands of Zata and darkened stoned, I voice this cry to Ahmed, forgotten and alone. The passing clouds have left me, homeless and unknown, and only mountains dare to hide me in a barren home. I emerge once more from the ancient wounds. I approach until I see the details of the land. I emerge once more in the year of the sea was breached from the cities of ash when I found myself alone. Armoured was the sea, foaming among the bullets, a camp that fiercely grew, raining time and fighters on us. I am Ahmad al-Arabi, 
he said. I am bullets and oranges and dreams. I am Ahmed Adel Arabi. Let the siege come. My body is the fortress. Let the siege come. I am the line of fire, and I will besiege you in turn. From my breast is the shelter for my people. Let the siege come. O Ahmed, born of stone and of time, you say no. Dying close to my blood and rising in the wheat, the birds have willed their songs to me, and I have been gathered to the heartbeat of the fields. Go deep into my blood, go deep into my bread, so that we will have a simple homeland and a dream of jasmine yet to come. Ahmed al-Arabi resists. We will journey.